Well, good morning again. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And I just want to personally say thank you to all of you who are 5, 4, 3, 2, or 1 year old for sitting here with us through my long sermons over this last year. Thank you for being patient. I really am, am grateful to you guys for doing that. If you're five years old, I'm talking to you. Thank you for serving your mom and dad by sitting and listening to a, a mommy and daddy message. We are looking forward to you getting back into much more fun and entertaining teaching from the Bible in your classes. So very much looking forward to that uh, in just a few weeks. Um, I had planned at the beginning of this week to continue our series in 1 Peter, which I believe really is speaking to us consistently uh, in this cultural moment. But as the week progressed, I, I just felt an increased burden to address this election season from the perspective of God's Word. Uh, as you know, the election is dominating the news, and I'm sure it's significant in your conversations as well, in your thinking. There's a high degree of speculation about what may or may not happen at or after the election. There's significant contentiousness and division and even animosity in our country right now. And so I thought we, we really need to open the Scriptures and allow God's Word to speak to us. I'd like to read this morning Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and following. I believe this passage can be a beacon for us as we look forward to the next month and beyond. Let's read together, remembering this is God's Word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, bless the preaching of your word. Perhaps one of my favorite scenes in literature happens in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, which, as you know, is one of my, my favorite series of literature. The Narnian ship Dawn Treader had become trapped in a magical black mist 
place of terror where one's nightmares come true. The effects of the madness are starting to take over the crew, and everyone is feeling the encroaching terror and insanity building and surrounding them. And Lucy, faithful Lucy, calls out in desperation to Aslan, the great lion. Aslan, she says, if ever you loved us, send us help now. And suddenly, into the darkness and growing chaos, an albatross appears, flying like a beacon of hope through the darkness. It draws near to the ship in Lucy, and she hears Aslan's voice whisper to her, perhaps my favorite line in Narnia, courage, dear heart, courage, dear heart. And the great bird leads them straight ahead, forsaking all other navigation. They simply follow its lead, and soon they are safely out of darkness. We're approaching what may be the most contentious election in my lifetime. Uh, The nation seems to be deeply and passionately divided, and each political side has declared the other to be an existential threat to democracy and our future. Just this week, as you know, there was a very contentious presidential debate and the media exploded uh, in response. Uh, Many are even questioning the peaceful transition of power after the election. Hatred is spewing from radicals on all corners of the political spectrum. And just to add to the pressure, a Supreme Court seat is up. under nomination for appointment. It it is a a time of increasing chaos, in some cases of of unthinkable division and even violence and calls for anarchy. And for many Christians, it, it is a time of anxiety and uncertainty about how we are to get through this season faithfully. There is a a sense of nightmarish quality about 2020, isn't there? So many things piling up one on top of the other that all seemed unthinkable, and there's no sense that the end is yet in sight. There's a sense that this may escalate, this may continue, new troubles may come. So, where are we to look? We, we need a guiding beacon, a voice, a, a revelation to guide us through this season. We don't know when it will end. We need the courage that comes from having a, a beacon that we can trust. And I believe this passage, there are many I could point to, but this passage helpfully gives us that beacon. It points us to God's glorious purposes in Jesus Christ. And that is the beacon that I would commend to you. That is the beacon that we need in going through cultural turmoil, political division. We need the beacon of God's purposes in Jesus Christ. And that's the beacon that Paul gives to us. I want to make this message very applicable to the seasons. We won't dive into every exegetical detail the way we might normally reference some other scriptures, but I want to at least walk through it because I think it provides a springboard to biblical topics that help us to keep our eyes fixed on that beacon. 
and to take courage in the right way, to think the right way. We have a, a need for faithfulness, a need for Christian courage in this particular cultural moment and beyond. We need light. We need the vision of God's purpose in Christ. I want to give five five marks or five fruits, you might say, of what it looks like when we are looking to God's purpose in Christ that I think can help guide us through this season. Five sections from this passage. Let's look at them one at a time. The first, I'm just going to give single words just for ease of outlining and remembering. So first is gratefulness. Gratefulness. Paul writes, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now, if we think that we understand political turmoil and personal suffering, we need to go back and study the Apostle Paul. He understands political turmoil and suffering. His nation was not free. They were under the subjugation of a foreign power at this point. He traveled throughout a very dangerous world. And what he is consistently doing throughout his letters illustrated here is giving thanks for gospel fruit in the hearts of his churches. In this case, he gives thanks for their faith in the Lord Jesus, as the faith that they have because they are united in Christ, the faith that they exercise through their union in Christ, and the love that they have for all the saints. This, these are gospel fruits. These are gospel productions because they have come to know Jesus. And Paul is grateful. Now, for the Christian, our greatest cause for gratefulness is not earthly comfort or political success even, but our faith and love in Christ, our new gospel reality and way of life toward God and others is a cause for great thanksgiving. That means that our greatest reasons for gratefulness will be untouched by this election, whichever way it goes or any election, the, these reasons for gratefulness will be present on November 4th, this year, next year, and until the Lord returns. They will be present regardless of the state of our country, regardless of the division present politically in our country. These reasons for gratefulness are eternal. The Anglican Michael Ramsey said, thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. I might expand on that quote respectfully and say, thankfulness is a soil in which sin does not easily grow. Listen, if we are neglecting thankfulness for our faith in Christ and the love of his people, when we lose our gratefulness for the gospel that we have in Christ, we will drift far and wide on the waves of anxiety and arrogance of complaining and slander and outrage. Thankfulness is a soil in which pride and sin does not easily grow. Listen, if we are neglecting thankfulness over the next 30 days and over the next four years, we will find other sins springing up from the ground of our heart. And I'm not talking about a cheerful, cheery optimism, Mary Poppins, in Christian form, I'm talking about biblically informed gratefulness, that we have a faith in the Lord Jesus and that we have a community marked by love should be a cause of gratefulness in our hearts regardless of what the headline says. 
And I want to say that I am grateful for you. We, as a pastoral team, are grateful for you. I am grateful that you have focused on the Word of God in this chaotic year. I'm grateful that you have not abandoned the gathering of the church, that you have loved one another in the midst of social turmoil, that you have served each other in the midst of a society marked by division and animosity and arrogance. There has been humility and kindness and gentleness and graciousness present in this congregation. And for that, I thank God for you. And that thankfulness does more than just honor the Lord. It sustains me, and it can sustain you as we face a world of division and anger. Listen, the world cannot be grateful because the world places all of its hopes and treasures in happiness that is seen politically and socially and in having all of their preferences realized in this world. But the Christian, the Christian has been given insight into another world, has been entered into another kingdom, and they can be grateful regardless of physical circumstances. Now let me urge you, in this next season, make a discipline of thankfulness. Thankfulness for the faith that we have in Christ Jesus, for the love of the people of Christ for our ongoing trust in him and our ongoing love for each other, and let our thankfulness prompt, as I'm sure it would for the Ephesians, fresh zeal in those two areas to continue to express faith in Christ and love towards God's people. Let those two things mark us even as we walk through uncertain national days. Gratefulness. The first evidence that our eyes are fixed on the beacon of God's purposes in Christ. Second mark, knowledge. Knowledge. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that, here's the content of this prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Knowledge. Paul is praying that they would know God better. And the scriptures make it very clear that the way we know God is through the face and person and work of Jesus Christ. They would know God in Christ better. They would know him. That is the knowledge that Paul desires for God's people. And that is the knowledge that should be our priority in this season. The knowing of God, especially in his revelation in Jesus Christ. Knowing him is the greatest knowledge we need right now. Now, Christian maturity certainly includes a, a kind of knowledge of the world and its ways. I, I, I'm not meaning to imply a kind of hyper-spirituality in which a person literally does not know who is running for president right now. We, we might think of Jesus' words, that we are to be wise as serpents while being innocent as doves. Maturity includes some political knowledge. In our case, knowledge of our two presidential candidates, of our political parties and their platforms, of the needs and problems of our country and our world. 
This knowledge can be helpful because it allows us to serve and represent Christ accurately through our vote and through our voice in this election. And I want to thank God that some Christians are called to full-time or substantial work in informing Christians of ways that a biblical worldview is related to the political and cultural issues of the day. So this is in no way meant to minimize the unique calling of some Christians to devote themselves to that, to serve all of us, or the calling that all Christians have to have some awareness of the everyday needs of their world or the country in which they reside. However, the peak, the pinnacle of our calling to knowledge is the calling to know God, especially in Jesus Christ. It is to know God that we are called. It is the knowledge of Him that Paul is crying out will be present in the Ephesian church. It is knowing God that marks the mature Christian. Christian maturity is about knowing God. And nothing we can read about the election or the various power players in this world is more important than reading and studying God and how He has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. Now, I am tempted, as I'm sure you are, to be constantly looking, and my wife has to challenge me, to not be always looking to see what the latest headline is. Now, who else can, can agree with me? Can I get an amen on that temptation right now? Is, is it, isn't that a, a temptation at this particular moment? Because it's interesting. It's interesting. Well, what, what, what's going on? And I want to have some awareness of what's going on, partially so that I can bring God's Word to bear for, for your sake. As a pastor, I want to have some awareness of, of, of what kinds of headlines are running across various social media feeds and so forth. But, but the point is not ignorance of the world. It is the priority of knowing God. It is the emphasis of knowing God. We need to hear that the knowledge the Bible offers us of God is the focus of our hearts in this season. We also need to hear that according to Scripture, the, the knowledge of God that is most clearly revealed is the knowledge we have of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in tumultuous seasons, in addition to being distracted by political investigation and social awareness, Christians are sometimes tempted to believe that hidden or mysterious biblical insights are needed for faithfulness. Let me say that again. Sometimes in tumultuous times, Christians are tempted to believe that hidden or mysterious biblical insights are needed for faithfulness. There are even Christian teachers who imply that studying the culture for hidden spiritual meanings and signs is the key to maturity. And without that extra knowledge, a Christian cannot be faithful or mature. But, but, we believe the Scripture is sufficient. It is sufficient. There is not additional spiritual knowledge outside of the Bible that is necessary for faithfulness in this season. And the Scripture teaches that Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. To know God is to know Him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Himself said, these Scriptures testify about Me. The wisdom in the Bible that is necessary for faithfulness is not concealed from Christians. It is not a, a mystery that remains hidden except to the select few. 
It is not obscure. It is not requiring an advanced intellect or a special discovery. It has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you are knowing God as He was revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are knowing what you need to know to be faithful. Our knowledge of God is found in Christ, not outside of Christ. It is found in knowing Him better, not in knowing something else in addition to Him. This is referenced elsewhere in the Scriptures as well. Let me just give you a few examples. Paul, writing a little later in this book, says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and listen to this, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. So the knowledge that we need for faithfulness and maturity comes as we gaze at the person and work of Jesus Christ. doesn't mean we can't grow in knowledge about Him, but it is about Him that we grow in knowledge. Peter writes in 2 Peter, His divine power has granted, listen to this promise and and, and take comfort in it, especially if you are tempted to wonder, "Am, am I missing some hidden spiritual knowledge out there that is necessary for faithfulness? Listen to this promise from God in 2 Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That covers everything. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Second Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 5.39, Jesus speaking, says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Listen, growth in Christian maturity is not growth outside of the knowledge of God, especially as it's revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is growth inside the knowledge of God and deeper in the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know what times lay ahead, but I can almost guarantee, because it's happened in almost every era of tumultuous history, that there are speculations about hidden spiritual meanings that are necessary for maturity. Do not be deceived. Your maturity will be found as you grow deeper into the knowledge of God as he has revealed himself plainly and graciously in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you are clinging to Christ and knowing God, you are safe and secure from the temptations of the enemy and you will be faithful as the nightmarish quality of this world tempts you to draw away from him. Paul's prayer is that we would know him and in a world inundated with knowledge, in an internet age in which claims of higher spiritual knowledge beckon our hearts away from this central truth, fix your heart on knowing God as he is revealed in and through Jesus Christ in the scriptures. He is the light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Third word, hope. 
Paul prays that they would know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? God has called us to hope in him for our future. And he has claimed us as his very own. Actually, that phrase, his glorious inheritance, most likely refers to the fact that God has claimed us as his own inheritance. It's a repetition of what God said to, the, to, the, uh, to Aaron and, and the priests in the Old Testament where he said, you, you are my inheritance. You are my special possession, he would say of his people. That, that's, that's the concept that we're speaking to here. Our hope is fixed in God through Christ. It is, it is a direction of our hope that is crucial for faithfulness in this season. Our hope should be pointed squarely at God and at his possession of us for all eternity. In this next season, we must not trade our hope in Christ for hope in earthly leaders. Don't make a savior of politics or candidates or even of a nation. Trust Christ alone. If we are longing for earthly peace and prosperity, we could place our hope in the man or woman who seems most likely to provide it. But if we are looking to our our future hope and directing it towards God and his purpose in Jesus Christ, then we we are free from political idolatry in this age. And isn't there a big difference between political servanthood and political idolatry? We serve in the political sphere for the good of our neighbors in this country and to represent the God of justice and truth and righteousness, but we don't idolize politics of this country as though they are a God. We don't look to a a prosperous and righteous America as our ideal future. We look to the new heavens and the new earth and the God who has promised them to us and who has claimed us as his own. We don't entrust ourselves to a man or woman who can provide us a kind of heaven on earth. We give ourselves to the God who has promised to bring heaven to earth and to make earth into a new heaven. We entrust ourselves to him. We serve politically, but we don't worship politics. We care about the well-being of every man, woman, child made in the image of God, and of course we want our nation to represent righteousness and not wickedness, to not promote evil, but to promote good. Of course we, we work strenuously, and again, praise God for those who devote their lives to that particular calling of being salts in this decaying world. But this world is not the direction of our hope. Now, for those who do not know Christ, it is not surprising that there is an increasing rapidness about political passion because this life is all there is. 
And if this life is all there is, wouldn't you be passionate about seeing it be what you want it to be? I would be. If this life is all there is, wouldn't you almost worship someone that you thought could get you there? Well, of course you would. Whatever your particular political leaning, you would pick the person most likely to deliver that to you and you would entrust yourself, your emotion, your passion. You would line yourself up with that individual and you would declare, you are my God, take me to the promised land. And don't we see that kind of passion, increasing rhetoric present in some of the political divisiveness that's present in our country? Now, Christians certainly should promote moral candidates with moral platforms. Certainly, they should desire God to do good through the political processes. They should work for that, for that end. But, but, but as those as those who are immigrants and exiles and temporary residents trying to be good neighbors, not those who are laying a foundation for a permanent home. We desire a moral American nation with moral Christian leaders passing just and righteous laws that restrain evil and reward good, and no more so than the desire to see our nation remove the abomination of abortion from our land. We desire that because we love God and we trust Him and we want to defend the innocent and the weak. But even in desiring and voting and working to that end, we we reject the idea that a better America is our hope. Our hope looks to the new heavens and the new earth, to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and no earthly country, however grand, however moral, compares with him. Brothers and sisters, our hope reaches far beyond this election, beyond the reach of physical persecution, beyond the reach of chaos in the streets, beyond the reach of the downfall of our institutions, beyond the hope of even the the downfall of our constitution. Long, long after the end of the American nation and democracy itself, whether in this life or the next, we will be enjoying the future that we have in Christ Jesus. Fix your hope on that future. Let no desire, however good, for the good of our nation replace that hope. Guard yourself against despair and exaltation in the political realm. I think of the proverb that says, when riches increase, do not set your heart on them. I think that could be said also of political fortunes. When political fortunes increase, don't rejoice with a kind of worshipful glee. Reserve that for the Lord himself. And when political fortunes are reversed, don't despair with hopelessness. The Lord is able to use righteous and unrighteous rulers in his own mysterious ways for the advancement of his kingdom. We agree with the saints of old that our reference in Hebrews 11 that says, as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. 
will never cease to be exiles and immigrants on this earth, doing good as we can, but our future, our future is the direction of our hope. Fourth word, power. Paul also wants them to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The greatness of his power, notice the direction of it, toward us who believe. Brothers and sisters, there is only one group and institution on earth that is the recipient of God's unstoppable and unending power. It is the church of Jesus Christ. His power is at work toward us. His power will not be seen, listen, will not be seen in physical dominion over earthly kingdoms. As Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, but it will be seen in spiritual dominion as hearts are one to his gospel because the lies of Satan will not be able to withstand the progress of the gospel. This progress is not in in physical coercion. It is not in political dominion, but in spiritual conversion through the life-giving word of truth. As, As Paul himself will say in just a few chapters, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Don't equate, don't equate the power of Christ with political progress. It may be that God chooses to grant political progress to morality in the coming election. It may be that he chooses not to allow that. I hope he chooses to allow morality to be progressed through this election. I pray that is the case. But the Lord is smarter than I am. And his power will not be defeated on November 3rd. His power will be displayed towards the church on November 3rd. The Lord may choose to grant his church cultural influence or power in some seasons as we stand for Christ in this world. But we must not confuse what Christ may choose to do, what we may even desire that he do, and what he has promised to do. The victory or defeat of a particular party in this country should not be viewed as the victory or defeat of the power of Christ. There is no moment in history or moment in our political background or future where the power of Christ is being thwarted in this age. There is no election, no candidate, no surprise, no party, no uprising that can stop the power of Christ being displayed in his church because it is a supernatural power. It is a power over death itself. And since that same power is at work in us who believe, we can have confidence the power of Christ will be displayed in his church at the end of November and next January and 25 years from now until the Lord returns. The power of Christ toward his church, the power of God that he exercised in raising Christ towards his people is unstoppable. It's unstoppable when they are persecuted. It's unstoppable when they are promoted. It's unstoppable when they are at peace. It's unstoppable when they are, they are being crushed and driven to despair. It is, it is unstoppable 
at all times, in all ages, in every country, in every generation. The power of Christ displayed in the resurrection of Christ towards the people of Christ that comes from God, that power should be the focus of our confidence in this next season. The power of God toward us who believe. Final word, authority. Authority. God seated him, Christ, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. We serve the absolute sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. He has the power to exercise his authority. He is not an authority in name only, but he is the name above every name. This is not a power struggle. God has declared Christ to be the absolute dominating head of this universe. His name is above Every name. It is above every political name, every political party, every nation on earth. It was above Nero. It was above Hitler. It was above Churchill. It was above Reagan. It is above Trump. It is above Biden. It is above every name. The name of Christ has absolute dominion. The world and all of its nations, its princes, its presidents are a footstool for his feet. He is absolutely in control of what will happen in November, of what will happen after November. He is absolutely in control of it all, and it will all come to him for judgment. There is, there is no way a Christian should fret with anxiety about the future knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ has been given dominion over it all. That should cause a trembling for every leader who defies God personally or professionally. It should cause trembling for every sector of society or any political platform that defies the word of God because they will face Christ as judge. And for whatever reason, Christ chooses to allow that rebellion to continue so that people can come to know him as Savior until he returns should not be a cause for anxiety or fear or questioning the wisdom of God because Christ Christ rules over all. Brothers and sisters, the sovereignty of God must be the unshakable cry of the church in chaotic seasons. The sovereignty of Christ, the dominion of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, this must ground our hearts as we vote, as we anticipate voting, as we anticipate the aftermath of voting, as we look at an uncertain future. We must ground our confidence in the absolute dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that he gave him as head over all things. This isn't just the head of the church kind of language. This is the cosmic head, the head of all things, the one with absolute supremacy over all things, but he gave him his head to the church. He is head over all things, but he was given his head to the church. There's this sense that the dominion of Christ is uniquely given to the church for their assurance and confidence. 
Who is your leader? The head of the universe. Understandably, people who are looking for a leader are desperately worried that their leader may not be appointed as head of this country. But people who are not looking for a head of the universe need have no fear. And need exult, should not exult in any other leader with this kind of worshipful exaltation. Gleeful ecstasy. There is no election for the head of the universe. God has established Christ. He is the head of all. He rules over all. There is no name. There is no throne. There is no office, secret or visible, public or concealed. There is no ruler that is above the authority and the gaze of Jesus Christ. Because of his death and resurrection, he has been appointed as God's regent over all creation and everything from sinful humanity to the fallen demonic order will be under his rightful authority. Paul sees the authority of Christ as a, as a reality declared by God and therefore unstoppable and unchallengeable. And his appointment as head is specifically for the church. Church, take comfort. God has appointed your Savior as the ruler over all. Take comfort, take confidence, and tell people about it. This world is frantic for security and furious because they feel incredibly insecure and vulnerable. And the possibility that someone who radically disagrees with me could have some control over my life, understandably, makes them angry. Christians can confidently say, I know the one who has absolute control over your life. Let me encourage you to come to know him too. Since Christ is the head of the cosmos and since we are his body, a clear implication is that we should be doing all we can to honor him. Since we gladly acknowledge Christ as the head of the world, therefore we should not show more loyalty to a candidate than we do to Christ. And we do not treat a political enemy in a way that is contrary to Christ. Since Christ is the head of all, our words should be truthful and gracious. Our ethical perspective should be shaped by the scriptures. Our tongues should not whitewash evil in our own political party or candidates. And our hearts should reject self-righteousness toward political opponents. We should vote in the presence of Christ, honoring that his authority will ultimately evaluate every deed, including every vote. As Jonathan Lehman has written, we become better friends to America by loving Christ first. He writes, a Christian's political posture in a word must never be withdraw, nor should it be to dominate. It must always be to represent. We must do this when the world loves us and when it despises us. Anyone who is telling you, withdraw, we're losing, or push forward, we're winning, may have succumbed to a kind of utopianism. 
as if we could build heaven on earth. Instead, heaven starts in our assemblies, even if only as in a mirror, dimly. Christians are heaven's ambassadors, and our churches are its embassies. Neither panic nor triumphalism becomes us. A cheerful confidence does. We represent this heavenly and future kingdom now, whether the skies are cloudy or clear. Let us represent this heavenly king and this heavenly kingdom with cheerful confidence. Cheerful confidence. Doing as good as we can in this world to promote a moral and just society. But never despairing and never gleefully exulting at the ups and downs of the political movements in this country. Let, let, us, let us be known for Christ far more than we're known for our politics. We need the beacon of God's purpose in Christ to be on our lips and in our eyes as we walk through this unexpected and uncomfortable season. We need to be those listening always to that special voice. Courage, dear heart. Courage. Christ is the head of all. His purpose will be fulfilled. No power of hell or scheme of man can take us from his hand. Till he returns or calls us home here in the power of Christ we stand. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would keep that beacon and that word in front of us over the next 30 days and beyond. The Lord, even as we, in our various roles and capacities, work for good and work against evil in this political season and stewardship that you've given us in this, this democracy, Lord, we, we pray that our eyes would be fixed on you, that we would labor with cheerful confidence that we would know you more than we know anything else, that we'd be marked by gratefulness, by future hope, and by reassurance in your absolute power. Keep our eyes on you. Give us courage. In Jesus' name.